It is not a pleasant sound right over there when the high notes happen. Uh, Let's continue our worship this morning. If you turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 13 through 21 this morning. So if you'd please turn there and then stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts fifteen thirteen through 21. This is God's word. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will, rebuild, I will return And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Lord, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, you have so so much to get into uh, this morning, so let's just dive right in here. Uh, We're currently in the second of a three-week consideration of what has been deemed the Jerusalem Council, though we here at Lakewood are looking at the details of of this meeting over the next few weeks. The decision that was made between these apostles and elders would have lasting consequences, impacting every generation of believers since. In fact, even every generation of non-believers, including and up to this very day, Again, we're talking about matters of salvation here. Salvation. How is it possible for woefully sinful, guilt-ridden, thoroughly corrupted man to be reconciled to a perfectly good, perfectly pure, all-knowing, all-wise, unchanging, eternal, absolutely righteous and just God who is far too holy to tolerate sin? How is this possible? How, How can such reconciliation happen? How can such eternal reconciliation happen when there's that much of a difference between God and man? When, when the chasm between a holy God and sinful man is that wide, is that great? How is this possible? Well, the disciples, many of whom are at this very council, once asked Jesus the same question. When a rich young ruler came to Jesus claiming Uh, to keep the vital components of the law of God from the time he was born all the way to adulthood, Jesus says, you lack one thing. He said, sell all you have, give it to the poor. The guy refused. He walked away sorrowful. He loved his wealth. He loved his status more than God. And it's at this point, uh, the disciples asked, who then can be saved? Who can be saved, they said. This guy was the very best mankind had to offer. He was both religious and he was rich. If this guy can't do it, we're all in trouble here. 
How is it possible for any man or any woman to be reconciled to an infinitely holy God? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With man it is impossible. Okay? Uh, we have to be content with our own inabilities here. We have to come to terms with, with the reality that sinful man can do nothing to either gain or improve on his right standing or justification before a holy God in, the sight, in, in our own strength or through our, our own ability. Simply put, uh, sinful men are not saved by what they do, but what's been done for them which lies in direct contradiction to the rampant false teaching which has, has plagued this corrupted and cursed earth really since the fall of mankind, even up to today with some of the outfits we talked about last week. And it lied in direct contradiction to the teaching of some men who came down from Judea to the church in Antioch attempting to co- convince these new converts to Christ who had been saved by grace alone through faith alone that their conversions weren't actually valid because they hadn't gone through the act of circumcision because they hadn't been circumcised yet Uh, circumcision which was merely an act uh, it it was a sign it was an outward display symbolizing the covenant made between God and Abraham whom he had already justified whom he had already declared righteous 14 years earlier 14 years before circumcision was even a thing Abraham was declared righteous and he was declared righteous because of his what? His faith. That's right. His faith. But some men came down from Judea. They were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Saying that you cannot be reconciled to a holy God, justified, declared righteous and holy in his sight, unless you do something. And this is typical of false teachers, right? You you can't be saved unless you fill in the blank. Uh, Get baptized. Speak in tongues. Feel a burning in your bosom. uh, Pray five times a day. Give to the church. Start doing this. Start doing that. Blah, blah. Blah, blah. These guys come to this church in Antioch made up of both Jews and Greeks. They come to this church which was enjoying true fellowship, true community with one another through the power of the Holy Spirit who had been graciously given to them by the Lord. And these guys said, nope, that's not real. These guys aren't legitimate believers. These aren't legitimate conversions here. Not until they get circumcised. Not until they become Jews first. Causing Paul and Barnabas to have no small dissension with them, Luke says. A heated argument is what this really means with these men who had had the audacity to come into the region which they had been charged with sowing the seed of the gospel of grace for having the audacity that they would come in among this church and start spreading this heretical doctrine. That's what sparked this trip to Jerusalem. That's what necessitated this monumentally significant meeting where the grounds and the guidelines for salvation would be settled once and for all. And they were settled, weren't they? Once and for all. There's no question. It's not up for debate anymore. It's over. As the psalmist said, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
Well, it's right here in the 15th chapter of Acts, among other places in his holy and inspired words, spoken through Peter, recorded and preserved for all believers. It says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Salvation, justification, reconciliation to a holy God is by his grace alone, through faith alone, faith that he gives us as a gift. Faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, alone. Now today, in, in verse 14, the very first thing we hear is James saying, Simeon, that's Peter's Jewish name, by the way, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. So James, the just, who is the half-brother of our Lord, one of the most prominent leaders in the church of Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem, an author of the, a letter in the New Testament bearing his name, after Paul and Barnabas share their testimonies of what they had seen and done, says, brothers, listen to me. It says, hearken unto me. I like that translation better. Hearken unto me. Hear me now. Peter just said salvation is not through the works of man that these Gentiles aren't required to become Jews before they become Christians, that God had indeed poured out his Holy Spirit on them just as he did as us, and he did so before they even had the opportunity to be circumcised. He says, I agree with Peter. Not only do I agree, but the prophets agree. And he gives an example of one prophet among several of God's prophets who spoke of this very thing. Now, before we look into that, I want to go back to these guys who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch for a minute here. And I've gone back and forth about these guys just in terms of their intentions. I thought, was it their aim to deliberately and purposely deceive these men and women of Antioch and potentially uh, future Gentile believers into adopting, uh, adopting a damnable work-based salvation which diminished the work of Christ on the cross? Was this their intention? Were they intentionally doing this? I mean, even Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Was that the intention of these men, to not only diminish, but to ultimately declare Christ's work on the cross to be null and void? To say that this was a vain sacrifice that took place? Or were they just a bunch of guys who were really immature in their faith and had a uh, super hard time under, uh, letting go of what they had always known. Their entire upbringing has been one way, and now they're asked to go another way, and maybe they just don't have you know, a good theological foundation yet. Like, like the believing Pharisees in verse 5. Here's why I ask this, and here's why I'm, I think it's important for us to consider here. Uh, we know from the testimonies, even recorded in this very book, that all four of the men who stood up to speak in the council, the, these apostles, they all had some serious reservations about Gentile conversion themselves at one point, didn't they? They all did. Not only that, but three out of four of these men that we know of had some serious reservations and doubts as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel as a whole, right? And yet, the Lord still showed them grace. And the Lord still allowed them to be the greatest witnesses to that grace. Think about this for a minute, okay? Look at the first guy who stands up, or that Luke records standing up to speak, Peter, right? He says, brothers, you know that in the early days, 
Remember, this was 10 years ago. In the early days, you know God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit was given to them by God without distinction. No circumcision, no adherence, or even pledge to adhere to the Mosaic law or customs of, uh, or traditions of rabbinical Judaism. Remember, even before he got done with his introduction, the Holy Spirit had come down on these men and women. He had filled these men and women. He had baptized them. They were saved by faith alone. Sola fide. Uh, Faith only is what that means. And that's his point. And it's so refreshing to see Peter stand up and make this absolutely irrefutable, indisputable stand for salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Why? Well, because it wasn't that long ago when he had reservations about this as well, right? Now, we're not going to get into the specifics of the timing of these events. There are more than a couple solid views out there as to when the following took place here, but all agree that sometime after the conversion of Cornelius and all his household, sometime after he stayed in their house and fellowshiped with them and ate with them, went back to Jerusalem defending this very thing before those in the circumcision party. At some point, he went back up to Antioch and had a a bit of a, how should we say it, Uh, a relapse. He had a relapse. He, He fell back into the frame of mind he had when the sheet came down with all those unclean animals. By no means, Lord, I would never eat anything uncommon or unclean. Me? A good Jew like myself? Far be it from me, Lord. Remember that? Uh, Well, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians that at some point after uh, Peter's encounter with Cornelius, after he knew what he just stood up and told this council to be true, at some point, Paul said, when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he uh, he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, meaning from Jerusalem, claiming to speak on behalf of James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Again, this is after the rooftop vision. This is after the angel. This is after the word, after the Holy Spirit clearly indwelled these Gentiles by grace through faith. He was eating with these men and women he was as brethren in the faith. But when these Judaizers came, uh, Peter drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And Paul says the, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, another speaker at this Jerusalem council. Look what Paul's saying there. Paul's saying Peter was a hypocrite, a two-face, a phony. He was an actor, a pretender. Yeah, but when, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter got the message, didn't he? And so now when he has the opportunity before the whole church, before the elders, before the other apostles, these believing Pharisees, he says it loud and clear. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Said, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing the yoke on their neck, uh, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Again, look how it flips around. No longer they're going to be saved like us. No, now it's we're going to be saved like them if we let go of all this circumcision nonsense. What we see here is yet another remarkable example of the amazing grace of God being extended uh, to one who we know for certain was one of his children even when he was acting in such blatant hypocrisy. Think about it. His called apostle who had committed such a grievous sin by shrinking back from the truth of the gospel because of fear of men, which apparently he has a habit of doing, right? Yet God still shows him grace. Still shows him grace. And he still shows us grace, right? When we sin every day, every day. His children, he... And even allows us to then be a witness to others of his amazing grace. So we can say, yeah, his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. How about Paul then? Verse 12. Peter gets done talking. The assembly falls silent. Then Luke uh, writes, And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, These guys get up and they give an overview of, uh, likely an overview of everything we've been studying for the past couple of months. Paul, he's up uh, over in Tarsus. Barnabas comes up and grabs him. He takes him back to Antioch where they teach for a whole year, building up the body of both Jews and Greeks. Then they're sent out by the Spirit, first to Cyprus, then up to Antioch in Pisidia and over to Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. Then they circle right back the way they came. That's the first, first missionary journey. All the while, they're seeing these miraculous conversions of both Jews and Gentiles with no evidence of any Greek men uh, or women coming through the gates of Judaism first, right? Signs and wonders are being done by their hands. Magicians are blinded. Paralytics are leaping up, walking around. The souls of the disciples are being strengthened. We had great unity in Antioch till these guys showed up. That's basically what he's saying. But Paul didn't always have peace with the brethren, did he? He didn't always have peace with these guys. He, he was feared in the church during those first years after the Lord saved him. He was feared by both those in the body and even by the apostles who were hesitant to believe that he had actually had a genuine conversion experience. You remember that? Uh, that is until Barnabas came in and said, no, nah, this guy's legit, right? He's the real deal. He's the real deal. They were afraid of him because uh, Paul hated Christians. He hated believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He approved of their execution. In his own words, he, he prayed. In one synagogue after another, I, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in Christ. Anyone in here been beaten for their faith in Christ lately? Not me. Well, be patient. I imprison and beat people for their faith in the gospel of grace. And why not? I mean, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he said, all that didn't mean squat when it came to my eternal standing before a holy and righteous God. It meant nothing. In fact, he said, whatever gain I had, all that stuff I just listed, I, I counted as loss, rubbish, dung for the sake of Christ. Paul, this very pious yet very wicked man who ravaged the church, had a very hard time accepting that salvation by grace alone could be offered to anyone, anyone who would believe. I mean, he was even obstinate to his own people being influenced by such a blasphemous concept. We, of course we have to obey the law to be justified, was his thinking. But the Lord saved him by his grace, didn't he? Unmerited favor, undeserved favor. You think uh, Paul deserved the saving mercy that was extended to him uh, by the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth because he was a religious man? Because he kept the law? Because he served in the temple? Because he had a, a little piece of skin removed from his penis? You think that's what satisfied the wrath of a holy God against Paul? Circumcision? Well, that's what the guy said in verse 1, right? Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Guess that's the standard. No. Paul knew that's not what saved a person. So not only uh, do he and Barnabas have this heated argument with those who come into their local church spewing this nonsense, but he then becomes one of the biggest champions of salvation by grace alone, grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone that the world has ever known. You see, Reformation doctrine, I know we got a lot of Reformed guys in here, that's great. <laughs> Reformation doctrine, though, is Pauline doctrine. Uh, Luther, Knox, Calvin, Zwingli, all those guys, they didn't come up with this doctrine. Uh, salvation by grace alone is a Pauline doctrine, and it was the doctrine of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ him, himself who said, He who hears my word and believes has passed out of death into life. Without undergoing any sacrament, any ritual, without any purgatory, by the way, immediately from death into life. How about the man on the cross? Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, I didn't read anything about him telling a Roman guard to perform circumcision on the guy first. <laughs> I didn't see that. And I didn't hear Jesus ask the guy, yeah, but will you at least pledge in your final moments here on earth to follow the ceremonial laws and customs which Moses commanded us in the wilderness? Did he say it? No, he didn't say that. Of course he didn't say that. Now, why didn't he say it, though? Because his standards were even higher. His standards were even greater. They were unattainable. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Knowing that since that level of righteousness can never be attained by a mere human or by mere human action or ability, that would render them and us, all of us, absolutely and totally dependent on someone else who was able to do it. Someone who was perfect. Someone to take our place so that we can then take his place like 
a substitute, like a, a penal substitutionary atonement, a sinless, spotless, perfectly pure sacrifice who would be put forth by God himself and slain on the altar on behalf of all those who would hear and what? And believe. And believe. Believe in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he hasn't gotten circumcised yet? No. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Paul was shown this same grace, even though he was a brutal persecutor of the church. And he was shown this grace because he believed in the gospel of grace, of which he was not only a benefactor of, uh, but an avid defender of and proclaimer of. So he does the same thing here in this council and all throughout his epistles. How about James then? We're about to hear from James, right? Verse 13 says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Now where does James get off saying anything here? He didn't even believe in Jesus, his own brother, until after Jesus appeared to him, having been triumphantly raised from the dead. Uh, John says, about halfway into his earthly ministry, uh, turn to John 7. You look at it here. Don't take my word for it. John chapter 7. Look at verse 1. Look, look 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 at old James here. John says, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So they were mocking him. Go up. Let's see it. Let's see you do these things. Uh, But now it's different with James, isn't it? Why is it different with James? Because he was shown grace. And he was gifted the faith to believe. James was transformed by the marvelous gospel of grace. Now, tradition says that he was killed uh, for his faith in Christ by being thrown off the temple. He he was taken up to the highest point of the temple wall, thrown off the temple, bludgeoned to death. But that's just tradition. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that here he stands in defense of the sacrifice of not only his half-brother in the flesh, but much more importantly, his eternal brother in the spirit, his master. As he opens up his letter, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A willing and joyful servant of his Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Why is this important to consider? Well, it's just another demonstration of the grace of God being extended to folks who who in no way, shape, or form deserved it. They didn't deserve any grace, which is really, really Good news for all of us here today, isn't it? That we can see these examples. 
Uh, just like these guys, uh, these apostles who couldn't earn their salvation before a holy God, just as they were utterly, utterly and totally dependent on the sovereign Lord to do a miraculous work in their cold, dead, unbelieving hearts, so are we utterly and totally dependent on God to do a work in our hearts by his grace alone, through faith alone, in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone, for all who would but believe in his name. For all who would but believe. Listen, if, if you're here this morning and you're a, a God-hater, or if you're a Christ-hater, a Christ-denier, a hypocrite, if you're a legalist your whole life, no matter what you've done, in fact, you are not outside of his ability to save you by his all-sufficient grace. If you would but, but humble yourself and cry out to the Lord to transform your heart by his grace alone, I would implore you to follow the example set before you by these three men. I would, I would like Paul, implore you to, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Uh, to, like Peter says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Or like James says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And really, James, really of all of them, was likely the one who sympathized most with these Judaizers, as Jim Boyce said. Interestingly enough, James was the chairman of the council, not Peter. James didn't think like Paul. He was the most Jewish of all the Jewish leaders. He even seems to have been somewhat of a legalist. So it must have come as a shock to these believing Pharisees when he said, no, I agree with what Simeon says. I agree with what uh, Peter's saying here. And not only that, but the prophets agree with what Simeon has said. Look at verse 14. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This is a reference to Cornelius and his household being among the first Gentiles to become members of Christ's body, the church. Verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind might seek the Lord and all, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now James brings in the exposition. Here's the proof text that will confirm what Peter's been saying all along here. And this is a particularly challenging text. I'm not going to lie here. There's, there's many different interpretations of this text here, uh, of this prophecy here. I'm just going to uh, share with you what I, I'm convinced James is referencing uh, this text for, what, what this means. But again, many different and, and really many convincing views which differ with this one I'm about to share with you. Uh, James is drawing from Amos chapter 9 here using the Septuagint or Greek translation of the Old Testament to make his point. And anyone who's read the book of Amos knows that it's a letter of judgment. Okay, pretty much the whole thing consists of divine condemnation against apostate Israel. It's a grim prophecy. It was a grim, it was, it was a grim time, really, in that whole region, in both the northern and the southern kingdoms, the divided kingdoms. It was, it was not a good time. Even the author of this, this prophecy, the, the name of, of this author, paints a picture of the content to follow. Amos means burden, or burden bearer is what that means. 
And again, practically this whole letter is a pronouncement of judgment from God due to the heartless worship uh, that they were offering, and this specifically against the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. It's, like a, it's a harsh condemnation of their propensity towards uh, ritualistic and ceremonial practices above their desire to have a sincere and right relationship with their creator. Does that sound familiar? Uh, well, the, while almost the whole book consists of these judgments, we see a glimmer of hope at the end, okay? We see a promise. A promise of blessing, a promise of restoration. And this promise of restoration just so happens to be the section that James quotes here at the Jerusalem Council. He says, the prophets agree, meaning multiple prophets, plural here. Multiple prophets agree. They are in harmony with, literally this means they share the same sound with Peter's explanation of Gentile inclusion into the people of God. He says, let me cite Amos just as one example here. Amos says, After this, or after these things, I will return. Speaking for God here. After what things? Well, if we go back to Amos chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, we can see these things in context, okay? It It says this, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Who's that? Every nation of this corrupted and cursed world the godless men and women of this earthly realm, whom God says, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, even and including God's chosen nation, the nation of Israel, except, he says, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to kill them all, okay? I'm not going to kill all the Israelites of this divided kingdom. Some of them will be spared. Verse 9, for behold, I will command... And shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Now, what in the world does this mean? It means that Israel is not above the wrath and judgment of God. God will pour out his judgment even on the house of Israel and mix them with the nations in his sieve and shake them out, separating the wheat from the rocks or the pebbles. Now again, who are the rocks? The nations of the earth, along with apostate Israel. Okay, all of the sinful kingdoms of the earth. Who is the wheat? Answer, the faithful, the elect, elect ethnic Israel, the the remnant of God. He always has a remnant. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. Now with that context, go back to Acts chapter 15 and James' usage of this text. Verse 16, after this, the destruction of the sinful kingdom yet sparing the righteous. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. The tent of David. So we see a reference to King David here. Uh, The recipient of the unilateral Davidic covenant, which said, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. But then, 
the promise continues and it, it expands. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here James says, Amos said, that the tent of David, the tabernacle of David had fallen. Now Amos wrote this in the mid-8th century B.C. But remember, he's prophesying here. He's pronouncing that there will be judgment in both kingdoms, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the northern kingdom goes into Assyrian captivity approximately 30 years after this prophecy. Then at some point, the Davidic line will fall. Okay? It will collapse temporarily. Is that true? Well, when's the last time Israel had a king from the line of David? King Zedekiah. 587 B.C., right before the Judean Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, right before the Babylonians came in and destroyed everything. Seventy years later, they go back in, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild Jerusalem, but what's missing? A kingdom. Why is there no kingdom? Because there's no Jewish king. Uh, who sat on the throne of David when they came back? Who sat on the throne of David during Christ's day 500 years later? Who sits on the throne of David today, 2,500 years later? Answer, nobody. No king. There is no throne in, in Jerusalem. There is no kingdom. Yet James says that God, through his, his, his prophet Amos, says after this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Now, when will the kingdom of Israel uh, be restored? When, when will the, the kingdom be restored to Israel? Well, at the beginning of this very letter, the, the apostles asked Jesus the same question, didn't they? They said, so, uh, Luke says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice, he did not say, are you kidding me? Kingdom to Israel? You're still holding on to that? Are you joking with me? No, I'm, I'm just going to rule from my throne in heaven for a while. Then I'll come back at some time in the future to bring you into the new heavens and the new earth. Did he say that? He didn't say there was no restoration of the kingdom to Israel. He just said, it's none of your business. Don't worry about that right now. Proclaim my gospel, apostle. He... The apostles knew that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Jesus knows the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. The prophets knew there will be a future kingdom from Israel. A, a future earthly kingdom with a king who will reign on David's throne from Jerusalem. And, and we know from the plain, literal interpretation of Scripture that there is an actual kingdom that is to come on this earth. It's described at length again not only by multiple prophets, but also a detailed description in John's prophecy of the end of the world as we know it, Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, yet some people just dismiss it. It's insane. A, a literal 1,000-year reign on, on, the, on the earth from the throne of David, and who is it that will be seated upon that throne? That's right. Yahweh promised to establish it forever, didn't he? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah, just thus 
fulfilling this unilateral covenant given by God. Now, I have to mention, uh, some folks believe this reference to rebuilding the tent of David that has fallen is a reference to Christ coming at his first advent. When he, he came to the earth, he died, he rose, he ascended, and is reigning from his kingdom in heaven. The, the tent is supposed to be metaphorical for the church. But that's a mighty bold twisting of Scripture, or as they would call it, a spiritualization of Scripture. And in this spiritualization, they basically say all the promises made to Israel, including this one here in Amos 9, were fulfilled in the church, or, or, or just forfeited altogether after the Jews crucified the author of life, which means that the church has replaced Israel. In other words, since Israel did something, or better yet, did not do something, namely, they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but instead had him crucified, well, that means that God has forsaken them. Now, doesn't that sound eerily similar to what we've been talking about here? The law, circumcision, they didn't do something, so they cut him off? Come on. Ultimately, they're saying God made promises to his people, but then he took them away and gave them to someone else. Or just said, meh, forget about all those little details there. Just forget about it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not too keen on trusting a God who says, I promise I will do this, but then he doesn't follow through with his promises, right? How could I then genuinely trust that he will do what he says he's going to do for me? Wouldn't that make him a liar? He says, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And I don't feel like it anymore. I think I'll actually do it for these people instead. Or will I? I don't know. I guess you'll just have to wait and see. Come on. I know why they do it, though. They get so hyped up on Calvin and Luther and Knox and Zwingli. They believe everything that these guys say is gospel, but the reality is these guys were sorely mistaken because what they proclaimed with regard to eschatology went against the very nature and character of God. God does not break his promises, ever, ever. So don't be fooled by it. Look again here at uh, James' quote in verse 15. It says, After this I will return. Return to what? Return to the earth. What do you think this refers to? It's obvious to me. I'm a flawed man myself, so don't take my word for it. You just got to study it and read it. But it's, it's obvious. This is the second coming of Christ. Revelation 19. Has this happened yet? Did I miss this? I mean, is Kirk Cameron going to pop out of a bush and say, hey, you're in the tribulation, you're Christ is... Coming back, I I don't know. Did I miss all this eschatology? When he returns, what will he do? What will Christ do? What will God incarnate do? He says, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will establish the kingdom on earth, the millennial kingdom. I mean, Micah 4 tells of this. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 32, Habakkuk 2, Zechariah 8, 3. What, What do you do with these texts? He says, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will restore it. Why? Verse 17, that the remnant, the righteous, preserved men and women of mankind may seek the Lord. And 
All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. God's remnant, God's chosen, God's elect, God's called, God's set-apart people, the Gentiles in the tribulation period. Now, do you see anywhere in, those, in that text that says the Gentiles will have to become Jews in order to enter into the millennial kingdom? No. I don't see that anywhere here. You know why we don't see that anywhere? Because Gentiles don't have to become Jews to enter into the millennial kingdom. Gentiles are saved as Gentiles in the tribulation, and not a one of them will have to be circumcised in the process. Amos is just one of the, one of the prophets who spoke of this time. Zechariah 2, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. I will dwell in your midst. You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. No mention of becoming a Jew first. Zechariah 8. Many peoples and strong nations shall, shall, seek to, uh, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Has this happened yet? Will it happen? Yeah. Will circumcision be required to come? Like a COVID passport? Instead? <laughs> can't come in. You're not circumcised. No. <laughs> Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. This does not happen. Yet we, we know enough to, to know that no submission to the law is required there. Isaiah 45. Assemble yourselves and come Draw near together, you survivors of nations. Turn to me and be saved, he says later, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. No circumcision, no adherence to the law of Moses required here. So, James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The prophets say they don't have to become Jews at the end of the age. So why would we make them become Jews now? Very important to note this here. He's not saying that Gentile inclusion into God's plan of salvation here in the first century is a fulfillment of Amos' prophecy. It's not. It's not even a partial fulfillment. This is very important to recognize. James is not saying that Gentile inclusion in the first century is a fulfillment of this prophecy. He's simply saying what's happening in the church is in full agreement with what the Old Testament prophets say about the future millennial reign of Christ on this earth. Okay? Do you understand? This, this Amos passage here is all about the future. It's all about the future. It's all about the future. So don't trouble them. Okay? Don't trouble them. Literally, this means don't hinder them. Don't annoy them. Don't throw an obstacle in their path to trip them up. Uh, some might even say, don't give the Gentiles any flack with an F, flack. Or maybe let's cut them some slack with an F. This is a good reminder for the up-and-coming preacher here. <clears throat> if you're going to mess up a word, do it when your sermon is predominantly speaking on grace, abounding grace. Learned a new word last week, flack. James says, listen, brothers, my Jewish brethren, don't trouble the Gentiles. Okay? They're saved. It's, it's legit. 
They, they have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of them. Don't make them question it. Don't make them question their salvation. <clears throat> but then notice something very important. <clears throat> he recommends that instruction to the Gentiles be given. In verse 20, he says, Don't trouble them, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had, has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, we're going to get into the details of, of this letter and the messengers next week, Lord willing, but what in the world is this about here? So wait, are they under the law or not? Are they supposed to just keep these four laws, this partial law, or what? Answer, not to be saved. Not to be saved, but in order to experience true fellowship, true community within the church, James says, yeah, <clears throat> let's tell them not to be an offense to those among us who still desire to honor the Lord by upholding certain things. We don't want to be an offense to them. And you know what? I don't want Gentiles using their freedom in Christ as an excuse to cause our Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. You understand that this now, this now shifts from a matter of salvation of Jews and Gentiles, which we've already determined God makes no distinction. All are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. In other words, how do we now live as one body made up of Jews and Greeks? How do we now live? How do we now live in harmony without offending one another or causing one another to stumble or continually violating one another's conscience? How do we ensure that our, acts, uh, our actions and the freedoms we now enjoy in Christ aren't a hindrance even to cross-cultural evangel uh, <coughs> evangelistic efforts? In short... How do we, who are saved by grace alone, now extend grace and compassion to other brothers and sisters in Christ and how we live the rest of our lives here on earth? That's what he's talking about. Lord willing, that's what we'll look at in detail together next week. In the meantime, we praise the Lord for his amazing grace. Amen? Amen.